0: On today's episode, we have sex educator Ren Graybert join us for a conversation about their journey navigating the complexities of the medical system with a chronic condition. Together, we talk about the importance of establishing boundaries, the vulnerability of being surrounded by dildos, and how to communicate your needs. Y'all, I really appreciate how Ren shared so much of their personal journey to discovering their chronic condition and just some of the complexities that they had to face when moving through the medical system, and it is so clear how their experience shaped their passion to change this system. So Ren, my heart goes out to you. Keep fighting on and making the world a better place. Y'all, tune in. Yeah, how are you actually doing? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, you know, I'm actually doing okay. Um, I know right before you reached out to me, I broke my foot in oh three my places, which is why it took me so long to get back to you. And I really apologize for that. But um, yeah, I was in the middle of a move. <laughs> and i was bringing out a couch to a friend of mine who was taking one of my couches and i missed a step and that was it and
0: oh my god
1: <laughs> and i started grad school at the same time no way yeah so you know there's just been a lot going on and i yeah. definitely have um some exhaustion and a little bit of overwhelm <laughs>
0: yeah
1: uh but overall things are are pretty okay so yeah <laughs>
0: I really resonate with the sense of overwhelm and exhaustion. What did you start grad school in? Um, I am going for
1: a master's in social work. And um, I'm doing that online. And I already have a master's degree in human sexuality education. And I'm kind of kicking myself for not doing the dual degree that they had with an MSW. (laughs) Could have done it all at the same Mm -hmm, time. mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't think I was ready at that time. So, you know, maybe it's for the best.
0: (laughs) What do you hope to get out of going back
1: for your LSW? Um, I want to provide therapy. Um, I've been doing sex ed for a while and I really love it. And I do continue to do it and will continue to do it. But I also see how much sex ed is needed in social work and therapy. Um, So I'm hoping to kind of bridge that gap between the two uh, while also providing therapy, especially to queer and trans folks.
0: Yes. Amen. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> I want to write
1: everybody's letters for hormones.
0: Yes. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and it's so, so needed. Uh yeah, I can imagine that's a lot to step into? I, I'm not sure what your life was like before. When was the last time you were in school? Uh, I graduated in 2017, so, so it's, it's been, been a minute. A, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so adjusting back to that, I'm sure, is a very different headspace, especially after the last year or two in the pandemic. Or... Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. How are you surviving? Uh, you know, it, it really
1: changed a lot of how I saw the world and myself and my life and it definitely led to all of this change. So I'm kind of grateful that I had the space for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's tough not seeing friends and being more isolated. I just went to a wedding this weekend and saw a bunch of friends outside wedding. Um, and it was just so much, but so good at the same time to get hugs. Like I don't get hugs mm-hmm. <laughs> as often anymore. And so it was just nice to be in that
0: kind of space with people yeah I'm sure and I mean at this point I feel like we're in this weird space where it's like it seems like the pandemic is over slash this is new normal slash but at the same time we're still like this normal is so different than what we used to have and are still so much so longing for in connection with people so yes I feel you equally on that one very strongly yeah Mm -hmm. Well, good um do you have any questions too before we start about the podcast me doing it anything
1: yeah, um I guess, is there a particular format? I know you said kind of casual discussion, but should I keep anything in mind?
0: (laughs) No, not at all. This is so free-flowing. That's half of the anarchy, right, is I don't come in with anything. I really just want it to be a space to chat and get to know the people that are doing the amazing work in the community. And so I kind of leave it open to you. I want to hear your background, your personal story, your why, and how you show up in the world. So but beyond that I don't have any like guiding, you know, rails or something. Yeah. Okay.
1: That's totally fine. And um how long do you usually have these conversations for? About an
0: hour. About an hour. Okay. Yeah.
1: Sounds good. I've got plenty of
0: time. Amazing. That's <laughs> typically curious. how long it takes for people to crack open the vulnerability, right? I just got to keep like chipping, chipping, chipping. Until yeah. people Tell me their darkest secrets and then I'm like,
1: yes. <laughs> Have you been doing this podcast a while?
0: Uh, uh, about six months now. Okay. So it's still very new. Um, still figuring out because I'm also a grad student. Uh, yes. Figuring out the complexities of like, is this a sustainable project for the next four years I have in this program? You know, it's yeah. a lot of time. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> sure. <what> finding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you're in
1: a PhD program too, right?
0: Society, mm-hmm, yeah. actually. But, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Very similar. So I started clinicals this year. So that has really added like a whole nother level of time that previously was not in my last year when I started this. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. i know because before we started this i was like how am i gonna say i'm doing i feel like i'm in the same place where you're like i'm like deeply overwhelmed but also okay you know yeah. like i'm kind of in the middle of this ocean of a lot of things going on but we're still swimming yeah somehow <laughs> so yeah but, yeah, it's been a really fun journey to just connect with a lot of people and build community and to, like, hear people have, you know, opinions on various podcast episodes I've released and hear how it's changed or made them think about things. So I like to hold on to those when I get stressed out for, like, why I do this.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Yeah. Okay. So do you want to start then with why do you think you were nominated for the podcast?
1: Oh geez. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Ooh, big questions. Big mm-hmm. questions.
1: Well, I know that um you had been speaking with Karen Yates, who was on an episode, I have to listen. I love Karen and <laughs> we have worked together for the past few years and she's always been such a huge supporter of my work teaching. Uh, sex ed specifically to medical providers. Um, mm-hmm. There aren't a lot of folks doing that work. And the reason why is it's extremely difficult to do that work. You're met with a lot of challenges at every point. Doctors are not given much sex ed at all. Um, mm-hmm. The most recent stats are about three to 10 hours in all of their medical training, all of it, <laughs> Wow. all of those years, and that's all they get. And that's not, you know, Always no. even the case, sometimes they have even less than that when I was working at a hospital with with providers, I told them that stat, and one doctor looked at me and said, "You know that sounds really generous because <gasps> I got nothing <laughs> three to ten hours no <laughs>
0: Wow,
1: yeah, so it's really hard, and it's not so much anymore that the students don't want to know. I mean, I'm sure there are medical students and and residents who are not super interested, but I'm finding more and more that they are and their programs are blocking it from within and externally. So mm-hmm. I I understood, you know, if they don't want to be responsible for some reason, if they felt like it was a PR issue for some reason, that, that made sense. But then I was working with an organization externally providing reproductive health care um, training and specifically abortion training for family medicine and OBGYNs. And so many of their programs were blocking them from getting that external training. It was really strange, you know. And a lot of them would say, Oh, we're, we think this is great. This is really important. And then when it came down to, getting these folks their malpractice insurance and their licensing and whatever other paperwork needed to be completed. Uh, some re- for some reason, it wouldn't work out at the last moment. So hmm. yeah, so it's really tricky to to do this work, but it's so, so needed.
0: Do you have any? Well, okay, one. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, yes, it is so <laughs> deeply needed. And I'm already just in awe of the fact that you're fighting a huge, huge system here by what you're talking about. Do you have any thoughts about what is causing that pushback from the multiple different levels of like the hierarchy that you're combating right now? I think that a lot of the people in charge of medical
1: education are coming from an outdated perspective, and I think that there's a lot of concern about progress you know what that looks like and is that acceptable and you know if we allow this are we making a mockery of our institution and just kind of these these thoughts that we've heard in the past right but they aren't really all that accurate anymore but because a lot of folks in those positions of power are still coming from that mindset yeah it's really tough to move the needle forward
0: mm. Right. And it makes sense that, I mean, after the years of patriarchy and capitalistic structure that we have, at the top would be the people that have that mentality and want to keep that there, making it harder to do the work that you're doing of trying to bring that change. What do you think doctors are missing by not getting this education? At the
1: most foundational level, I feel like they're missing out on the best ways to connect with their patients. You know, it's not just about sex ed facts and how bodies work and what things people do in their bedrooms. It's also being able to have a real conversation with somebody and saying, Hey, I just want to make sure you're okay from a healthcare perspective. I want to make sure you have the information you need to make the best choices for yourself. And how can I connect you to resources? And how can I answer questions for you that are specific to you and your life and your body? So, yeah, I think I think they're really missing out on that that humanity piece, honestly.
0: Right, 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 right. Why or I want to take you a little bit further back. This is what you're doing now. But also, how did you get into this? No one just starts, you know, out of the womb being like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So I really want to hear, like, where does your journey begin it's funny you
1: say that because I feel like I've been doing this my whole life and the reason why <laughs> yeah. is because um I really decided I wanted to do this work when I was 16 years old oh, and wow. I I feel like you hear a lot of this kind of stuff from sex educators like, oh, I was the friend who everybody came to with questions because I had a cool mom who told me things or I knew how to search these things on the internet. Uh, but really, my my start was um, I came out as queer at a very, very young age, and I started attending a weekly youth group provided by my local Planned Parenthood for LGBTQ youth, and everybody working there was a sex educator, you know, they were Planned Parenthood staff, Um, they had to provide sex ed in order to get funding to do this work. Um, And I just loved having such a safe space to be myself and meet other people who were similar to me. And I just thought to myself, this is what I want to do. I want to create these safe spaces for people.
0: Mm. When you came out, was your community a safe space for you at that time? I mean, in your community being friends family?
1: It really varied. Um, my family was not great mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I did have some good friends who were really helpful um, some of my teachers at school were were there and they really encouraged me. I started my school's first GSA and. What is that? A Gay-Straight Alliance. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so new high school, new Gay-Straight Alliance, and I had a few teachers who just said, here you go. (laughs) You would love to do this. We have a a teacher to kind of oversee this and run with it. So I did. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That still takes a lot. I mean, coming out at a young age is not an easy thing to do.
1: No. And unfortunately... Well, unfortunately, at that time, we didn't have as many supports. I feel like now more folks have more support. Um, A few years ago, I did a workshop for junior high teachers who run a gay straight alliance for their junior high students. And I was just floored like wow a middle school or a junior high having Uh, a group like this that was unheard of the fact that it was even in my high school was a huge issue in the early 2000s versus now I think there's there's a lot more going on I think back to my mom saying that I was always super (laughs) strong-willed and I used to you know wear that like a badge of honor you know yeah I'm strong-willed and I can do anything and uh I look back now and I think wow that shouldn't be put on a kid <laughs> you know all that you know yes it kind of emboldens you but at the same time it's like yes and that young person also needed support that yes. they weren't given because they were the strong one and yeah. you know. so yeah it's just caused anxiety in my adult life but it's fine
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh it's totally okay it's not a okay. no problem
1: <laughs> um, oh my god but yeah i i think Yeah, just knowing it was it was me that I had gave Mm -hmm. me a lot of strength to just kind of do things my own way and really set me on a path to kind of forge my own path in the world and do things my own way. And yeah, it's really hard these days when I feel like I'm up against some kind of barrier to doing things in a way where it's like I know this can make sense I know I can do it this way <laughs> why can't
0: we just let's work together and make this happen right. Right, right 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 I'm so interested how the concept of being strong-willed could be connected to anxiety yeah because you know then you put so much pressure on yourself mm-hmm. right it's
1: like oh I'm the strong-willed person I'm this you know a plus yeah. student I'm this and that and the other thing and then you have the littlest bit of not even failure, but like, you know, you have a misstep or something and all of a sudden it's like, oh, (laughs) my life is over. I ruined everything.
0: (laughs) Right. Exactly. I know. I literally had therapy today (laughs) and just of like going through these different ongoing relationship problems that I have in my own life, coming to my therapist and being like, I just don't know. I don't have the answers and I don't know what to do right now. And just even that like made me like come to tears just because I just felt so weak And even in that, just learning that, you know, to find compassion for ourselves in those moments. And it makes a lot of sense that we don't always have to be 100% put together. But, like, somehow even, like, subconsciously, that's just, like, such a drive at the back of my head that I'm sure you resonate with.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Like, God, I don't have to have the answers always, but, like, my brain is like, yes, you do. It's like, we're just trying to relax a little bit more, you know? Yeah. God, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think I resonate with you probably in a lot of ways. I think, I don't know, I keep coming back, at least personally for me, of this importance of softening. Mm, yeah. Of, yeah, saying that, you know, I'm weak really sure I am here and I need that hug, you know, that you were lacking, you know, from the pandemic and all these sorts of things, just being able to be soft of when we need those and communicating that to
1: others. Yeah, being vulnerable mm-hmm. at its core. Exactly. I mentioned my anxiety. I also dealt with a lot of depression when I was in high school, Um, a lot of feelings of loneliness and a lot of yeah, just lack of support. And I think at that point, I was kind of looking to the future of, you know, what will my life be like when I'm not stuck here? (laughs) Uh. and so I really started thinking about what do I actually want to do with my life and you know, how will I get there? And it really kind of helped me get through some of those hopeless moments. Mm. And I think having that space with those role models where I really felt seen, it just kind of set the trajectory. Yeah. Right. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Could you explain to me and maybe the listeners more what it feels like to be seen. I feel like this is frequently a phrase that just kind of goes around and never really gets described of what that means.
1: Yeah. For me, it's feeling like, you know, the person or the people in front of me, it's not that they're just there, but mm-hmm. they're there with me and I'm mm-hmm. a part of it and we're connected. And it's not just, you know, surface level. We're all here. It's it's more of a And I see these things in you and all that you are, and I accept that as it is. Yes,
0: exactly. I feel like that all that you are piece is so important because frequently we get into these spaces where we're, again, the same thing we're talking about, right? Like coming forward with a sense of like holistic self that's already, you know, healed and productive and all these other things and instead coming to the people that you can be seen in all of your existence and accepted like you said and held in that and not judged and dare I say loved in that fullness and how powerful that can be to inspire us to do you know the work that you're doing because I'm sure when you see that mirror back and that encouragement it really allow it you naturally want to start doing that with other people it's very um infectious I feel like in that way
1: yeah it
0: really is (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: From there, I uh, went to Temple University. I'm from Philadelphia originally, and I went for public health, so I was still very on that track towards going into um, a public health setting like a Planned Parenthood or something like that. Um, I did some interning with STI prevention and education groups and did a lot of uh, HIV testing, like mobile units and things like that. and. I just loved every moment of it mm-hmm. and especially being in one-on-one conversations with folks in a provider's room. You know, if I was working with folks at Planned Parenthood and taking their information or doing HIV testing, you're kind of sitting there and talking about really personal stuff. So it's usually good to kind of also have conversations about where where you're at in life and how things are going and... And just kind of really getting at uh, whatever's bringing the person in. A lot of times they're really nervous. So, yeah, I really fell in love with that component of it. And from there, I continued working in public health settings. And it was great, but I also wanted to explore kind of more the fun side of sex Mm -hmm. ed. So uh, I started working in sex toy retail. And I did that for close to a decade. And I still love the one on one conversations with people the most, even though I was teaching workshops, you know, just being on the floor with people who had all these questions that they had no one to ask. You know, they didn't have a therapist that they should have had to talk to about these things, probably. Um, But, you know, it's like this is the first step. They're in the space, they're by themselves, they're surrounded by dildos. And all of a sudden, you know, they can start opening up, you know, my marriage isn't going the way I wanted it to, or I feel broken because my mm-hmm. body isn't doing this thing I think it should be able to do or
0: right. what have you. Yeah. Frequently, people don't have spaces to have these conversations.
1: Yeah. Yeah coming from a queer perspective. And as I mentioned, you know, you're kind of on your own and you're figuring things out for yourself. There's really not an archetype. I mean, now, now I see a lot more of this on TV and in media. Um, But especially back then, you know, we really didn't have much to go off of. So you're kind of creating yourself as you go, right. And I feel like just having to be in that mental space, so often or even all the time, really lends itself to being able to see outside the box yes. and find creative solutions mm-hmm. or to just come at things from just a much different perspective.
0: Yes, certainly. And to have <laughs> yeah. the lived experience to connect with, right? That's also huge and to understanding, you know or being able to empathize and sympathize with the other people that are in similar shoes. Do you feel like, I know this is a dumb question, but it's not, but like, do you feel like you've landed more in a stable understanding of your queer identity now? I do.
1: Um, You know, it's funny when you come out at a, a young age, and at least for me, i really felt strongly about it enough to say something i feel like a lot of folks you know they they get these inklings when they're younger but they're not entirely sure so they don't feel the need to tell everybody but when you're in that space and you're like yeah this is totally it it makes sense i i never really questioned it the language changed over time but you know the, the feeling was always there I think the first time I really had to question identity was coming to terms with gender stuff. Mm -hmm. And I really started dealing with that more in my 20s. And I also feel much more stable with that now (laughs) after uh, coming out to folks. And um, I changed my name and pronouns and uh, went through uh, a gender-affirming surgery. and, Mm. And now, yeah, it's just... it it feels like it's a stable like i understand what it is i don't have to label it all the time language is helpful i really do love identity language i think we need it in order to not be erased from history as much as possible
0: right um
1: but it's also really nice to just have that feeling and to know like this is me this is home this is what it feels like and that's it
0: amazing if you're willing, I'd love to hear more about that. I'm not going to – obviously, this is your space. And if you, it's something you want to dive into, I'd
1: love to hear more. Just in general about uh, identity and, yeah, I'm trying your to think gender, oh, what identity, else. I mean,
0: <laughs> you said that you've come to this process of understanding yourself. And if you're willing to, I'd love to hear about that process. But also with this show, I don't want to ever like pigeonhole someone's like one piece of identity. Be like, this is where we're going. And so if you don't want to direct it in that way, we can still like talk about other things. But
1: yeah, no, I can talk about that a little bit more. And I, I think it also connects to some other identities. So I'll kind of go into that too. Okay, great. By the time I really started focusing on gender identity, I was also becoming chronically ill. (laughs) Mm. So there was also, you know, those two pieces at the same time of dealing with, with body stuff in terms of physically what that felt like and mentally of feeling, you know, dysphoria and being in medical situations all the time and having to advocate for myself. And I think that even strengthened that, that self-advocacy that I already kind of had there. Which also really helped with, you know, talking to family members or talking to people in my life who didn't necessarily, quote unquote, get it Uh, in terms Mm -hmm. of non-binary gender. I identify as agender. So when I think of gender for myself, it's like, no, there's just it's nothing. Nothing's there. (laughs) I understand how gender feels for other people from what they tell me, from what I read. um, But from like an internal perspective, it doesn't it doesn't feel like it makes sense. And so being able to express that in a way where people hear it and see it really came about from that time of learning how to speak up for myself. I was always very quiet and very shy. And yeah. so I kind of had to just become the voice for myself. And when I'm not teaching medical professionals, I really love teaching people how to advocate for themselves in medical mm-hmm. situations because it's so hard. Yeah. There's such a power differential in those
0: situations
1: and I'm kind of going off topic but (laughs) no no no,
0: you're good Um, I could yeah I could hear when you were speaking about that just the heaviness of that journey for you and thank you for sharing and the people who didn't get it how have you been in community with those people are those your family are those like because I think a lot of people would resonate with that same experience of understanding yourself so well but having so many other people just be confused by that
1: yeah well for folks who didn't understand and I guess I would put put it as aggressively did not understand like they were just so adamant about not understanding. Um, I had to cut ties. And that was difficult, like, you know, long time childhood friends, family members. Yeah, it was really, really hard, but also realizing, you know, trying to keep this person in my life, when they're trying so hard to bring me down. (laughs) It just wasn't worth it anymore. And I think I have a lot more respect for them now, in being in a space where, it's like, you know what, they're doing their thing over there. They're not affecting me on a regular basis. I can I can respect that they are a full human being who has, you know, their positives and negatives right, <laughs> in right, all right. other areas of their lives besides this. And it's just a shame that mm. we couldn't stay in community with each other. But at the same time, you know, my mom has been amazing and she really had no clue but she tried so hard <laughs> especially with pronouns pronouns were tough um but she she got it and yes. she's even taught other family members she's been the uh, one to tell it. them like oh this is you know you should be talking to Ren. this is Ren's name and pronouns and this is what's going on um she told my 86 year old aunt who is handling it very well. <laughs> um, she I doesn't always get it right, but it's very clear how supportive she is. So we kind of just go back and forth with this positive. I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't say you go, girl. That's no, but you know what? Thank you. Thank you for that enthusiasm about whatever we're talking about. <laughs> and then she's really great about it and just corrects herself and is like, yeah, you do that thing. <laughs>
0: right. And that's all we can ask for. Oh, yeah. Cat, cat yeah. Moment. Come Aww. sit. Yeah. This happens every podcast at some point. She likes to come in. Oh, she wants to be Uh, involved. Exactly. This is I like to call this is my co-producer, Miss Fat Cat. (laughs) Um, she's not fat at all. That's the point. But, um, wow. Okay. This is this is not easy at all, and I'm so the process of cutting ties with people for your own benefit instead of trying to change them is huge. And I think that's something at least I struggle with. I don't know where I'm always like, well, no, let me show them. Let me show and teach and bring people in. And recognizing when that is no longer serving you is really difficult.
1: It really is. And I also recognize the privilege that there is in being able to cut people off. I know... Yeah, you know, culturally for for people who are not white, like I am and not um, in a lot of other privileged positions like I am, it's really Mm -hmm. tough. Um, And I I think that there are ways to to place boundaries and figure out like, how do I keep this person at a safe enough distance for my own well-being while also keeping them nearby if I need to do so? So I always like to be cautious of that and thinking about, you know, it's not always easy and I'm not advocating for people to just cut people off (laughs) unless they want to and they can, you know, do what's best for you. But I think that there are a lot of ways to set good boundaries around that. I think there's a lot of confusion about boundaries being something where you're telling someone what they can and can't do, but it's really more about what you are willing to be a part of. And that distinction really changed a lot for me in understanding boundaries. So, you know, instead of telling somebody, don't use those pronouns for me, it's like, you know what, if you're going to use the incorrect pronouns for me, even though we've talked about this a lot, I just can't continue having this conversation. So I'm going to back away from this conversation. Um, So I feel like setting things up that way, letting folks know, like, these are my expectations. You know, if if you're not able to do that for some reason, we're just going to not be able to do whatever it is.
0: Yes, because I think what you're talking about is recognizing what's within our control. Yeah, right. Because boundaries of controlling other people is never going to be within our control, even though our brains like to think that. For (laughs) um, yeah, fun (laughs) list of reasons, but the reality is we can only control ourselves, and so therein the boundary. You have to ask yourself, though, what are you willing to give and how are you willing to show up? The therapist literally asked me that today. And so this is just like, damn, too close to home because this is really on point for me, at least personally. It's like, how do you check in with yourself enough to even know the answer to those questions?
1: Yeah, I wish I knew. Okay. <laughs> it's tough. It's It's a lot of self-reflection <sighs> that goes into it. But something that's kind of coming up for me as we're talking about this is I'm thinking about people who are really um, hesitant to to change in any way and it comes down to a you're trying to change me you're trying to do this and that and. You know, I I think if there was more understanding around, you know, no, I'm just I'm just setting a boundary and we can still respect each other and and whatever else our relationship entails. It's not about trying to control other people. It's about, you know, just asking for respect in a relationship.
0: Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And having to put that boundary down can be really hard at times. Yeah. Yeah. I had to do that with my mom. When we f- when I first came out to her, she was just not about it and tried to pull that because she's my mother and because she's religious that she has this, like, right to need to give me truth, which is condemning my queerness, right? Um, and I had to set some very serious boundaries of, you know, like, okay. Then I will not engage in this relationship in that way. But, but yeah, I, that can get really hard though, I feel like. And like, how do you enact boundaries that do enough to like result in actual change in behavior if you can't cut people out completely? That's really tricky.
1: Yeah. And I think every situation it's is too different. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I had a specific answer, but I feel like everybody kind of has to navigate that on their own. And hopefully they have a therapist or a community or, People to lean on to kind of bounce those ideas off of and and come up with the best solution.
0: Right, exactly. No, I know. I mean, right. That's exactly why you're coming into this work, right, is because in reality, there are no pretty answers for every situation. It's a lot of dialogue, communication, and half the time I feel like just making a guess and seeing if it feels right. You know what I mean? yeah. Seeing what sticks to the wall after you throw it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I was journaling about that last night where I was like our sense of identity, I'm always asking, like, who who are we? And we a lot of times we try to put a lot of labels and I feel like sometimes our identity can be found in asking ourselves what do we like right so yeah throwing that ball at the wall and if it sticks hey yeah that's me and if it doesn't you're like wow I learned a very valuable lesson that was not for me and we're gonna keep going but like that reality of actually throwing the ball means not knowing what's gonna happen and you have to like step yourself into those spaces and actually try to do stuff and that's where it gets a little scary for people with anxiety like us yeah (laughs) right the unknown exactly Uh, Exactly. exactly Um, I always end up coming back to that somehow in my podcast. So talking more about your journey to with the medical system, what do you feel like you lacked in your experience that you hope, you know, by becoming an educator in this space, you can change?
1: Well, I'm thinking about times working with medical providers as a chronically ill person and feeling like... I was being placed into a box a lot of the time around, you know, different identities instead of being asked, you know, what does this actually mean for you? Um, you know, and being asked relevant questions. I feel like I was asked a lot of irrelevant questions that were more about curiosity and, you know, trying to learn um, versus trying to help. <laughs> I feel like, you know, going through chronic illness it takes a long time to get any kind of formal diagnosis. Um, there's always a lot of testing that has to be done. Um, and it can take so long. And And I feel like if I had doctors that really listened mm. <laughs> um, earlier, or that weren't so stuck on, you know, oh, it's probably this diagnosis, and we've tried every test, and it's still coming up negative, but we're still trying to go for that diagnosis. Yeah, I know this is coming out in a very scattered way. But But really what it comes down to is (laughs) I feel like they just, you know, were not listening or had Mm. a very particular idea of what was happening or who I was. And instead of communicating well and trying to figure it out, we did a lot of of unnecessary everything (laughs) and it took even longer to figure things out. I think it's about 10 years is the the average that it takes somebody to get a formal diagnosis for chronic conditions generally. Wow.
0: I didn't, I was not aware of that statistic.
1: Yeah. And it depends on, you know, what the condition is, but overall, it it tends to be pretty hard to get a diagnosis because it's just so many years of testing and going to different doctors and finding a doctor that actually listens and doesn't blame it on something else. Um, I know for a lot of people, their weight is the blame, where the blame is placed for a lot of things, um, even if it's not related at all, and then they never get tested for anything or they're not um, treated properly because it just comes down to, well, you should just lose weight um, or they can't even get testing. Um, a lot of like MRI machines and CAT scan machines, and they're not built for larger bodies. So what do you do if you can't even get the test you need?
0: Right.
1: Um, yeah, there are a lot of problems in the medical model.
0: <laughs> right, 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 right. And yeah, I mean, 10 years is a long time to go through the process of what is going on. And not having answers and having to advocate and having to listen to different opinions coming at you from all different sides. And like, yeah, where do you find your voice and all of that?
1: Right. It's really difficult. And then on top of it, you know, you also have to explain this to your friends, your family, your coworkers, why you had to call out from work so many times and why you're at this doctor's appointment and that doctor's appointment. and you know, letting family members know why, like, I might not be able to show up to that event because I'm just in a lot of pain and I might need to cancel at the last minute. I'm seeing more and more people with scent sensitivity problems where they can't go to family or group events because someone's always wearing perfume and just can't stop for some reason. (laughs) So, yeah, Mm. it's tough.
0: Yeah, it sounds like this has been a a long journey. (laughs) And yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. It sounds exhausting. It really is.
1: It really is on top of everything else. Like I I like to tell my, my folks who are not chronically ill, like think about how tired you are all the time from just living your life with work and whatever else is going on and just add on being sick all the time or in pain all the time on top of that. Mm -hmm. It takes up a lot of mental space and It just makes you very foggy after a while. Brain fog is a a thing that you hear a lot about in chronic illness communities. And it's not a formally diagnosed thing. It's actually more of a symptom than it is like a condition. But it's really difficult to find your words sometimes. Or, you know, some people go completely nonverbal because they just have such a a fog in their head that they just can't even function.
0: Mm. Wow! Uh,
1: It just takes you out of everything.
0: Yeah, that sounds like it would be very difficult to manage and to tell other people and to hope that other people would be understanding of what you tell them. And yeah. frequently, sometimes when you bring that uh, that conversation to some people, they don't know how to respond and they just kind of look at you like, "Oh, I'm 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 so sorry," and it's like that's not always what you're looking for, or at least what I'm not looking. Right? Like, I don't know.
1: Yeah, or you know, even worse, sometimes I I hear like, "Oh, it couldn't be that bad." Or, Oof. you know, couldn't Oof. be <laughs> couldn't be that bad. Um, or are you sure? <laughs> um, you know, but yeah. And some people, yeah, they get very uncomfortable and they just try to change the subject. Yes. It's like you didn't say anything at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And that comes back to not feeling seen, right? Like, exactly. <laughs> I'm telling exactly. you what my experience is and you're just choosing to not
0: hear and see it. For sure. Yeah. I like to hope. That that's coming from at least maybe a good place inside humanity that they are so caring that they don't want to say the wrong thing, that they just don't say anything at all or fall back into other tropes. like so, you know, like that's me being an optimist about the goodness of humanity. But it's like sometimes I think people forget that in those moments it is really just about being seen. And it's not like you have to have some perfect answer that would make, you know, whatever experience, you know, anything okay again. It's just, yeah. oh, I see you in that And marrying that back to people and how yeah how connecting that can truly be
1: yeah and that's really what empathy is right like just being able to be in the the presence of somebody and their feelings and not taking them on yourself or not trying to solve them but just being in that space with that person even if you're not even talking about it. it's like oh i hear you like can i just be with you in this space
0: right sometimes that's all
1: that's really needed Exactly.
0: I definitely typically fall into that space where I'm like, well, let me help you. Like, let me help you. And forgetting that that is not my role. And that comes from a whole other, you know, expectations of structures. And like, so I think it's so important to come back to this, like, actual, you know, connection of seeing each other and what that truly means of just, yeah, holding space in the present moment for the other people in front of us. And, Yeah. I actually had a friend recently who made a suicide attempt. So, like, as you're Mm -hmm. speaking about this, I'm definitely thinking about, like, how I was in that space of, like, trying to just be with that person in that dark space that they were at. And you can only hope that you did the best that you did, and they're still here right now, but, like, it's definitely a moment where I just didn't – you don't know what to do other than to say, like, I see you and this sounds really hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a week is what I'm saying. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. It's been a week. <laughs> oh, my God. But um, so we've talked a lot about your background, how you've gotten into this space. I think one of the things that you mentioned that I did want to ask you more about was you said you had thoughts and ideas on how people could advocate for themselves within the medical model. And I would love to hear what advice you might have or any thoughts.
1: Yeah. I think it's really important for for folks to acknowledge that, yes, there is a power imbalance in a space with a doctor. It's them and the provider, and the provider is in the position of power. And it's like we feel that, right? But we don't always, like, actively acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And being aware of it, I think, makes it a lot easier to kind of use your power back and, you know, think more to yourself like, you know what? Yes, they're in a position of power here. Also, they are working for me.
0: <laughs> mm, yes,
1: And so, you know, kind of getting yourself ready to, to say what you need to say, it's scary because, you know, they could tell you that you don't know what you're talking about or they could, you know, take away some kind of treatment. And it's important to know that there are supports available. Um, a lot of hospital systems and, and medical care systems have advocates that are available but I do like to remind people that medical advocates that work you know, within a system, they work for the system, not for you necessarily. But there's also no legal designation for somebody to have as a, a, an advocate. So if you're somebody who gets nervous have someone with you in your doctor's appointment. You can bring somebody in. If you have a friend who you know is that person who's like not going to take anything and, you know, will stand up for you, you know, have them in there with you. If you don't have somebody, you know, writing things down in advance is really helpful. Making sure that you have your thoughts compiled because it's really easy to get there and and <laughs> you've been thinking about all these things and then all of a sudden the doctor says, uh, says what's going on? And you're like, you know, I think I'm okay or you only yeah. mention one yeah. or two things. <laughs>
0: yes.
1: And then you leave and oh no, I forgot to mention that important thing. So yeah, I think I think it's it's good to kind of just give yourself that space to remember, you know, you're in a tough situation. You have these ways to support yourself. You have supports available and use them. Yeah.
0: Tricky thing is to use them, you must first accept that you need them or yes. want to have them, right?
1: Yeah. And that that can be pretty tricky. And yeah. I think that's where people kind of get stuck is it's like, right. I want to do this for myself, but how? And yeah. <laughs> so I think it's really important to just start at that point of realizing like, I need to to do this for myself because nobody else is going to. And it's hard and it really shouldn't be put on patients this way, um, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, in a completely different world. I imagine this would go a very different way. But until the medical system is really overhauled, it's kind of on us to <laughs> to speak up and and say what we, we need to say.
0: Yes. We're advocates really essential during your time with the medical system continued time have you leaned on them and found support
1: i have not worked with a professional patient advocate it's harder to find independent patient advocate this is something i, I could try to figure out like more resources that are out there for folks but because i knew that there was no like legal issue around bringing in a, a friend or a partner or somebody that's what i tended to do okay yeah. to bring somebody who i knew understood the situation understood what was going on with me, had really seen and heard what was going on. And we had talked about it and I knew that they knew what to say. And if there was pushback, they would say something Um, that helps me a lot. And so I always tell people, make sure if you have that person in your life, who's willing to help to ask them.
0: Right. Yes. To be vulnerable enough to ask for that support. Yeah. I'm glad you really had those people in your life at that time to be there with you. Yeah, it
1: would would have been much more difficult without them because <laughs> it took so long to finally just be the person to walk in and say, this is what I need from you as my doctor. And if you can't provide that, I'm going to go somewhere else.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Taking that power back, yeah, which I think is so important with everything that we have going on with the medical model because I don't think that it's going to be overhauled anytime soon. I think that there's will be enough work for both of us within this field for a long time. Yes, <laughs> I know, I know. Um, Are there any pieces of advice that you feel like you didn't touch on from how I led the conversation that you were like, "Damn, this is what I wanted to really give people," and I didn't have the space? Ah, uh,
1: no, I mean, I feel like we got into some pretty deep stuff here. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think – I think that was – that was great.
0: Okay, awesome. Okay, good. I always want to check, you know, I'm that person that sometimes gets home and is like, damn, I had something and I forgot. Yeah. So, like, to hold the space for it. Okay, well, then let me ask you one closing question that I ask everyone on the podcast. What is one thing that you wish other people understood was more normal? Hmm.
1: You know, I think – I'm going to go a little deep with this one. I love it. <laughs> I, and it's not very specific, but I feel like, you know, a lot of people deal with like really deep hurt from their past or just in their life in general, where it feels like, you know, I'm the only person who could have ever experienced anything like this ever. And I know I felt that way for a really long time. And it really prevents you from connecting with people, you know. And so I think yes. – if you ever hear that internal voice saying like no one would understand, nobody, nobody's ever been through this, somebody's been through this, it's just, it's it's so unlikely that somebody hasn't been through something similar, even if it's not exactly the same. Right. And you're doing yourself a disservice by holding it in and just holding in that pain and letting it bottle up versus sharing it with somebody who may have a similar experience or we'll be able to share space with you around that.
0: That gave me chills. <laughs> 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 but it's true. I mean that was so yeah. like succinctly packed of yes that the vulnerability allows us to actually connect with others. We are all have experiences of hurt pain joy i mean this is the nature of life it comes in these different waves and so yes they might not be the same waves we've all been on a similar experience of how deeply we can be rocked by some of these experiences that we go through yeah that was really great i really appreciate you <laughs> yeah. coming on the podcast this has been really lovely to chat and get to hear more about your journey Thank you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm I'm glad, glad, yeah, I really glad. I try to keep it pretty chill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you enjoyed today's conversation, then subscribe for new episodes released every Wednesday and follow us on Instagram at Modern Anarchy Podcast, where we open up a dialogue about all of these topics. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. And a special thanks to one of my favorite artists, Yor Smith, for the intro and outro song to this show.